Morning, Apricot. Good morning, Apricot. Morning. Oh, you slipped and glittered the chain, and I know I ruined it on purpose. <laughs> oh, we all clean. Well, clearly full of beans on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so, no, doing are... well. Doing well. Sorry, go on. Excellent. So for those of us joining us, today is a special of Talking Lost Bowl. We're basically marking 100 days since the election of the Albanese government. Yes, we are aware that it doesn't exactly line up with 100 days, but it's close enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think really kind of the first question that we should ask ourselves uh, is the really important one. Has it been easy under Albanese? Well, I, I was Depends promised... Depends on who you are. <laughs> <laughs> we were threatened with Soviet-style socialism by Sky News, and I haven't seen a single tank, so I don't know whether I'm disappointed or relieved. Uh, what a... No, I, I, I agree. Sky News did promise us, in fact, hardcore socialism and communism yeah, no. and... Yeah, so like it's some in as you said, some way it's it's a massive relief, and you know, some part deep in my my commie filthy leftist heart, I am disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still there's still time. That's how they get you. Yeah. They lull, lull you in in the first hundred days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, has, I, go on, Adit. Sorry. My yeah, my 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 opinions on um, a government government are fairly well known, but uh, so far it seems to be a reasonably steady ship. Yeah, I was I was going to say it's it's been um, almost intentionally low key as much as it can be for a hundred days, and that's probably exactly what Australia needed, no more, no less. No, I, I tend to agree. Like after. De, you know, depending on who you ask, the tumultuous and a uh, headline-driven last term of government, it's kind of, we did need that sort of soft, quieter start to the new term as a kind of reset for people. Mm. Excellent. So the way that I'm thinking this episode will be structured is we'll kind of just go in timeline order since the election up to modern day, if you will. Um, so... In saying that, I want to just kind of get your guys' opinion. Like, on election night, can you remember how you were feeling on election night and the days following about the incoming Albanese government? You know, what were your thoughts? What did you think it would go? Um, I might throw to you, Altherion. Thanks for that. Jeez, uh, on election night, far out. Uh, look, I can't say uh, I was super thrilled or super disappointed it was kind of a, a like i some part of me was still convinced that albo wasn't going to hit that magic 76 for majority like i thought that it would be uh we would be in a minority situation so in some way i was disappointed in on election night and in the days afterwards that that didn't eventuate um but 
another part of me, as I said, did accept that a majority government, even a very small majority, but a majority nonetheless, would provide some sort of quiet to the speculation as to what will pass, what won't get passed, what will be obstructed, et cetera, et cetera. Like at least we knew in the House of Reps that whatever Albo really wanted to get done would get done. Mm. Yeah, look, I had a similar a, a similar sort of feeling to Altherion on that. Part of me was was uh, secretly hoping the 76 wouldn't be reached just because I like the idea of a a parliament uh, essentially being essentially being hung up and having to to spend a bit more in time internally because that means there's less time for them to externally inflict themselves upon that. So from from a purely selfish point of of, of view, I was hoping for a, a you know a, a seventy four or something like that. In terms of the system uh, working, I think it's probably it's probably better for a. Um, the voting public to know look somebody got across the the line and we may or may not get into this this later but that perception of whether there was actually a a mandate yeah, or no, whether think... it was just scraping through is is another is another thing but <laughs> I, i've got to accept the stability has some advantages yeah i, I think the stability parts is a good one um certainly back on election night um, my seat went teal, so I was pretty happy about that. But I think the the sentiment before from um, about uh, neither happy nor nor sort of despondent is kind of I think the election result in a nutshell, right? The 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 primary vote going backwards, the the preferences going across the line. It almost feels like the days after the election, the the sensation was we had to to get we had to do something to fix a problem. We did something to fix a problem, and now let's see how it played out. And I, mm. I think that's a theme of the entire Albo government, right? Like nothing's changed in the, in a hundred days in that sense. Of you know, we're <laughs> almost waiting. Are we going to get a return to the kind of navel gazing politics that we've had before? Or are we going to see something new, like a new paradigm? Um, and I think we'll probably touch on events where there've been elements that have felt very much politics of the past, but elements where it looks like it is actually a an attempt to move um, the parliament towards the future. Yeah, and just to kind of touch on that, um, we've got a comment here by aggressive ad nine three five seven, and it kind of really sums up, I think, the Albanese government as a whole for me at this point. Uh, they're responding to my first question: you know, has it been easier under Albanese? Uh, and they said it hasn't been any easier, but more pleasant. Um, which I think is very accurate. Like people are, there are still fundamental issues in this country that do need to be addressed. Um, but at least now the government is not, like like the, the government has a bit of a happy face, has a bit of professionalism to it um, and just really projects an air of competence uh, more so than the previous one, I'd say. Hmm. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd prob- I'd, I would probably agree that the the optics seem to be better. Uh, leopards and spots and two sides of the coin and all that sort of thing. I'm going to I'm going to wait to to see how the next uh, really how at least the next year goes and how uh, a budget having been acted upon and under the belt is is there to to measure so i think it's good as a bit of an indication in some ways 
uh, it's a little bit early to to judge. But I tend to agree with you. So far, pleasant <laughs> seems to be a reasonable de de description. Um, uh, that could be a double-edged sword. And, and I think the other thing is, like, they've inherited a worsening situation on a, a macroeconomic level and, and globally and have spent a fair bit of time, I think, trying to manage expectations, which benefits them as well, right? They, I think if they come in promising to shoot the lights out and the economy tanks, it's going to hit them pretty hard and they're going to be punished by voters for it. So they probably struck a a fairly low-key tone intentionally because of a sense of the shitstorm that's to come. I tend to agree with that, Anderson. Like, um, I noticed in the in the months leading up to the election, whenever the RBA talked about or even did raise rates and stuff, people were very quick to ask, what is the government doing about it? But at the very, very first rate rise post-election, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I just swam in different circles immediately after the election or what, but like it, it felt like there wasn't that blame game. It, it, like a lot of people kind of just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it's too soon for Albo to have done anything, so we're going to give them a pass on this one. And I don't know if anyone else really noticed that. Yeah, look, I, I noticed that. I, In fact, it's interesting that you, you said that. I, I definitely noticed that. Uh, you know, part of me thought, well, is this indicative of... A, a bias, but I think it's probably uh, indicative of people thinking, "No, let's give this new go this uh, th this new government a, a bit of a go," and it's too soon to get back on the treadmill. And I think part of that is a lot of people were simply e exhausted, uh, depending on what side you you're on or how you view different issues. I think a lot of people were just exhausted with the. Morrison government and during the down period no one was really that concerned about uh you know attending a two minutes of hate so yeah I had the same experience El theory on glad we're not alone in that, in that. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from the post-election kind of reflection the Albanese government kind of really did hit the ground running I felt especially they, you know, they did their charm offensive in terms of um, foreign relations with, you know, Japan, uh, South Pacific, you know, they really did switch on the charm thing. Um, they also gave the Bill of Wheeler family a bridging visa. Um, they removed the cashless welfare card, asterisks on that. Um, oh, glad <laughs> you said asterisks. But... But they also, so like there was a really clear push from my point of view to again really project competency, professionalism, and like return to like, I don't know, dare I say, integrity in government. Um, oh, but it's funny you should say integrity. We can segue <laughs> off that. <laughs> oh, by all means, Altherion, segue well, away. Like you said, they hit the ground running, and in some aspects I agree with that like there was quickly the uh as I said the Bilawila family getting their initial bridging visa and now I believe they've even been granted permanent residency unless I'm remembering that incorrectly um we've had the 43 percent target that was in the news for seemingly a million years it felt like it um but one thing that has been noticeably absent at least as far as I've been paying attention is 
talk about the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Like this was a big deal in the lead up mm. to the election. Like mm -hmm. everyone, not just the Labour Party, but everyone was arguing about who do you trust, trust in politics, et cetera, et cetera. And there was all this focus on rorts and sports rorts and corruption and everything like that. And, um, you know, very soon after the election, we had a little bit of announcement from Alba going, oh, yes, we're going to talk with the TLs and all that about this anti-corruption commission and see what they think. But it's kind of disappeared from the zeitgeist since then. And I find that very strange. So a little bit of things this is one of the last things I remember the other needs to get flagging with the ICAC, with the federal ICAC is that it would be done by the end of the year, basically give us time. We've got to work out the details. I will say I am, I, I, and I have been a little bit um, lampooned on the sub before for this take, but I am really actually concerned about it because even, you know, if we just kind of want to remove my bias of, you know, the Greens already have a federal ICAC bill that's passed the Senate, Albo could walk into Parliament next week and just pass it and then we'd have it established. The Teals also have their own, like, and a lot of work has gone into these bills over the years, a lot of the consultancy work, a lot of effort, mm -hmm. um, whereas Labor is sort of starting from scratch. They've said that they will talk with the Teals and, you know, use Helen Haynes' bill sort of as a template, but I can't help but wonder why, what is, like, what, you know, in, if we talk about reinventing the wheel, what, how are they going to improve the wheel at this point? I suspect uh, a big part of it, and this could just be my cynicism showing, is that hmm. they could, you're right, very well just pass one of the, t the existing bills into existence, but I suspect they want to have one of their own that has their own name against it, so then they can crow and say, our mm. version of the ICAC is the one that yep. was passed, so therefore our one was the best vision for how it should be put together. I 100% agree with that, and I and I made reference to this earlier, but there's been this subtle flexing on the teals and greens in particular in a kind of almost know-your-place type way. Like, let's just gently remind them that, that we're the government and, you know, we don't need you as much and, and, like, just stay in your lane type thing. And so creating your own bill and being the main driver for it gives you the credibility to then say in 2025 we led the charge on a federal ICAC, we came up with the model and we've been responsible for whatever scalps it's claimed in the period since. And no credit goes to Adam Bant and his band of class traders and vote stealers and no votes go to the Teals either. <laughs> you know, it was entirely on us. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I do fully pick up what you're putting down, Ender. Like, like, I think the political, uh, you know, what is it, the, 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 the political... Uh, God, what's the word, the mathematical term, that um, calculus, thank you, the political calculus right. has been done and, you know, the, the balance has been chosen by Albo and the decision makers in the Labour Party of do we go with one of these other bills and present ourselves as a collaborative government that's willing to work together with other people to achieve good outcomes or do we want to crow and make it all about ourselves? And they've probably decided that, you know, that semi-selfish, let's make it all about us rather than being seen as being collaborative is the way to go. Yeah. But the... There is a degree of self-preservation in that though, right? Because when the, one of the things that came out of the, the election was the Liberal Party in, in trying to court kind of a more blue-collar conservative, you know, 
cashed up tradie type audience alienated its its traditional liberal base and sort of saw its primary vote and its its electoral fortunes decimated. Labor's also had its primary vote slide backwards and has that that scenario where it's trying to decide is it a party of of a more sort of aspirational class of of migrants and the like, or is it the party of the more sort of the people that deride as inner city lefty socialist types and they're the ones that that latter category that are starting to to look at the greens increasingly as is actually a party more representative of their interests so there is a degree to which they've got two main tasks they've got to restore trust and faith in in institutions and government but they've also Mm -hmm. got to make sure that they offset any hemorrhage to the greens in particular also to independents and to try and avoid essentially the same fate the Liberal Party's had. So I can see why they would do it from a self-preservation point of view. I, I, it's not the the outcome I would have liked. It's not the route I, I think that they should have taken, but I can see why they would have done it for the necessity of staying relevant past the next election. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's always worthwhile keeping in mind that their job is their job. Uh, I mean, a lot of people seem to be under the illusion that they're there to 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 serve us and do the best thing for the the voters. That's not their priority. And look, maybe that's my cynical hat on it, but that's my that's my observation. I'll believe the ICAC when I see it, and when I uh, I'll put a qualifier on that. I can accept that there will be something in name presented. Uh, I don't believe it's going to have the teeth that everybody want. And while I, I agree with your cynicism on it, Eltherion, and I agree with your uh, assessment of the benefits for them, uh, Ender, I don't think it's going to have the teeth that, uh, say, what the Greens would propose. And for that reason, I think they're almost compelled to make sure that it's their bill because they have to serve themselves to preserve their job. So I kind of just want to pick up on a couple of things here, if that's okay, Um, because it sort of segues really nicely into something that I think is becoming a bit of a cornerstone of the Albanese government so far. Let's be honest, Albanese and the Labor government in general have really kind of proven themselves to be shrewd political operators. Um, I take your point and, uh, you know, about flexing on the teals and the greens. And we really saw that early on with like the staffing allocations, for example. Um, And I don't want to rehash that, you know, in the comments, uh, but it is really telling that the teals in the lower house, you know, who Albo doesn't need at all, really, like he only works with them when he wants to appear collaborative as part of a, as mm. part of really his own branding. They all had their staffing cut. And then David Pocock in the Senate, who Albert might actually need his vote on some things, did get extra staffing. Like he's the mm. only one. He's He is already a politician that is representing one of the smallest amounts of people, you know what I mean, really. Um, yeah, well, look, I don't, I don't know the, uh, I don't, I don't remember the biblical verse, but I do remember the comment: "You should judge them by their their fruits." And I thought that was very telling: the allocation of resources. Um, and then we've also seen it come into play in some other things as well. 
you know, the 43% target, for example, which we will certainly come back to. Um, but there was also, um, I'm just going to transport one second. So a lot of it is about these games. There's, I want to touch on the new kind of line in terms of self-preservation against the teals and the greens as well, which is product differentiation. Uh, I heard this from Aldo uh, a week, week and a half ago. And I've seen it repeated a little bit now, you know, by the usual talking heads online. Um, and I think it's a really kind of actually key thing to pick up on. If you go back to before the election, the government was trying as hard as it can to basically say, no, 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 no. You know, we are not like the Greens, completely different. We're not crazy. Um, don't worry, you know, we can, we'll do a sensible government. And now when they kind of claim that policies that the greens have are just product differentiation as if you know both policies are you know home brand bread slightly different branding um it's really kind of in my view a concession that a the greens have matured as a political force and they have better policies now and now you're actually kind of trying to prevent people switching by going, no, 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 you don't need to look too closely at the policies. They're basically the same. Like, we're good enough for you. Um, when there is actually kind of significant differences when you actually look at them. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And there's also this question of whether they back themselves into a corner with that approach of trying to be too clever by half. Like... I just saw the Greens have made this proposal about the minimum wage being pegged to a certain percentage of the, the mean wage. And if that's rejected at the skill summit, how do you make that argument that we're basically the same, but the Greens are pushing more and more progressive policies that Labor's having to be, by virtue of being in government, having to be the sensible force and say, well, no, if we take all the factors into consideration, that's too an extreme an idea. You know, it's it's it seems like it's a little bit of a double-edged sword for them. If they can make it work, it'll be an amazing coup from a political standpoint. If they can't, it will end up becoming, I think over time, similar to Rudd's, you know, greatest moral challenge thing. It's words that come back to haunt them and potentially harm them. Mm. Yeah, I did think about that. That's when I was thinking about this, uh, I did think about that greatest moral challenge uh, comment. And I, I feel like over the, the years, regardless of what side the uh, when the morality side comes comes into it, I always remain a bit a, a bit dubious. But I, I, I suppose a counter you could make to that, though, and this is putting aside your opinion on uh, how easy it might have been to win the election. A counter to that, though, is Labor obviously got a makeover at the same time as Albo got a, a makeover, which I'm I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that internally there's been a lot of uh, polishing and moving around and just change in the, uh, the paradigm with which they approach an election. So a counter-argument could be that while we have these expectations that they should have been meeting the needs of particular groups, internally they may well have identified that that's no longer a winning strategy uh much as we might want to see them servicing those groups it could well be that they have made a shift to what they think is a winning strategy and what we're observing is actually very smart politics on their behalf perhaps um but i think i've also made a 
a few, quite a few missteps when we really kind of think about it. Um, the main one would be really, in my opinion, the stage three tax cuts. Um, why are they still here? You can talk about how, oh, it was an election promise kind of thing and, you know, it wasn't us, it was Morrison. But the fact is that, that these, like, tax cuts are actually just super unpopular. And they're, and, you know, and they talk about the economic outlook often, you know, they try to lower expectations. But then they've got aside, they've set aside this gigantic pile of money that they're going, oh, no, 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 sorry, that's kind of, you know, we can't look at that. It seems really bizarre. I do have a quote oh, yeah? from Albo directly that is directly related to this that I want to pull apart a tiny bit. Um, you know, there's the semi-famous quote that, that Albo is, you know, taken of saying no one left behind in terms of his politics. But the full quote is uh, that he wanted no one left behind because we should always look after the disadvantaged and the vulnerable, but also no one held back because we should also support aspiration and opportunity. And to me my mind immediately broke that down into two parts. The first part, looking after the disadvantage and the vulnerable in my mind, immediately jumped to uh, welfare and, um, you know, payment uh, investigation rates and all that stuff, which was an election commitment to look into that, that Labor dropped immediately before the election. So it's technically not a broken election promise to not do that. But the second half is, you know, looking after supporting aspiration and opportunity. And to me, that is black and white. Like they went to the election saying, we want to support aspiration and opportunity. And to them, supporting aspiration means making you keep more of your own money, in inverted commas, in your pocket from working harder and working more, which gives mm. them credence to support the tax cuts. Yeah, it was a very I, that, that quote was a very Blairite statement. Um, so being a fan of Tony Blair, I was okay with it, but I understand I may have been a minority on that one. But I think just yeah. with the stage three tax cuts, what <laughs> what they're intended to do, and I don't know they'll necessarily succeed, but they're mainly aimed at people where things like they just like step over the boundary of what would be um, a, a rebateable amount on childcare support. So there's this argument that if you're getting hammered, you're not getting subsidies, uh, you're getting bracket creep on income or, or supplementary income, so you're going to pay more tax. It's a disincentive against working hard. And so what they're trying to really do is say people on about 150K who aren't getting middle-class welfare will get a little bit more back in their tax. I've never met a person in my life who's turned down a pay increase because it'll put mm. them in a higher tax bracket, ever. No, I just, why, I, why would you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I get that there's a theoretical argument that this is better for um, that that middle class, and I and I think Albo's right. You do need to you need to strike that balance, and that's why I was such a fan of of Blair's domestic policies, which is you need to make sure the vulnerable are looked after. You also need to look after your your middle class and provide avenues for aspiration, like bar remove barriers to entry, level the playing field where it's grossly unfair, but that's also your middle class who tend to sway elections either way as well. So it is sensible politicking from them. Um, I don't know whether they've struck the balance mm. right yet. It's probably too early to say in 100 days, but I feel like that's at least the, the target they were roughly aiming for when they shot downrange. Oh, I think mm. that, in, in, like, I don't want to get into arguments really in specific terms for or against stage three, because that will take literally hours and we'll spend all day at it and let's not drag ourselves down into doing that for this 
podcast, but <laughs> we have to remember these stage three tax cuts were initially legislated before we started, you know, looking recession light and before the pandemic and before the war in Ukraine and the problems with supply chains and uh, raw materials and resources and fossil fuels and everything that's come out as a result of that. So I think based on some of the language from Albo and other ministers and the treasurer and all that, that whilst they might not be necessarily looking to scrap stage three, despite what some people may want them to do, myself included, I think that they're positioning themselves to say, okay, we know they're not due to come until 2024, which is before the next election. We're, we're still going to put them through. We're just going to delay it by a year. So it's after an election. So therefore we can have an election on it and have a mandate on it. Let's actually see what the voting public think about it. Yeah, but I, think that's yeah, but I mean, you take. Well, I think it's. I think it's a great call. It's, I, I suppose it's that uh, you could also you could also argument that you could also argue that uh, the people that vote were voted in by the public um, put put that uh, put that out there. So I. I I'd probably think, agree with you that it's a, a it's a good way to go politically, but it's it's also a little bit of a a, a way to get out, sort of have your cake and eat it too. You know, say, oh well, it's it's there on the table, but let's uh, let's delay with it because what you're sounding sounds like a a perfectly reasonable political strategy, and it sounds like something I would put money on. They they already <laughs> had an out though, right? They had an out which was that the the tax cuts would need to be subject to an environment where it was prudential to do so from from a, ma a macroeconomic perspective and when you've got inflation projected to go on for a, for a little bit longer you'd argue that they actually don't have the the conditions that have been set by treasury to implement these in the first place so they've got an out it's, it is a bit weird that they're not availing themselves of that out um and so i think that the holding it until the next election and delaying it slightly means you don't anyone who stands to benefit um who's actually invested in these because there's also i think a, a large group of people who would stand to benefit who don't really give two shits either way but the people who are really invested in, in getting something back on this don't feel like they've been um ignored or, or given a promise that then gets revoked so i sort of want to kind of touch on this and Altherion, if they do delay it to the next election what side do you think the ALP will come down? Will they be like kind of campaigning on getting rid of them or would they be still supportive of them during the campaign, do you think? I suspect that because of, you know, the bed they've made so far, they would uh, campaign on keeping the tax cuts, but we may very well see some ALP MPs who have been critical of the tax cuts up to this point having a little bit more leeway during the campaign to allow their voices to be heard as well. So that way the ALP will be able to paint themselves as saying like, oh yes, like generally speaking, we support exposition, but we are happy to hear arguments from the other side as well. And that's why we're leaving it up to the voters to decide. Maybe, but I'm not so sure if this is what they want to do because I'm thinking about it in terms of the next election, you know, making it, you know, an election issue to get their mandate and everything. Do you think the Labor Party really want Adam Ban in 2025 to get up on stage at the National Press Club and be like, Labor is supporting these stage three tax cuts still, 
despite the worsening economic situation and everything that's happening in the world, and the fact that you know just for less than half of the estimated value of those stage three tax cuts that we could fund dental into Medicare for ten years, like that kind I, of just hands him a bit of a win in my view. I don't think it is handing a win necessarily, uh, because. Uh, I was listening to, I think it was the Guardian Politics Live podcast the other day, or it may have been the party room with uh, from the ABC. I can't remember which one. But uh, the, uh, the discussion was had that it's not going to be seen as a win to argue for taxes at an election. And I suspect that whilst it's the politically, um, you know, popular move, so to speak, as Ardit said, for delaying the cuts by a year and allowing it to go to an election, blah, blah, blah. But uh, knowing some of the factional power and structures within the ALP, as I do, uh, I suspect that they're, that the Treasurer and a lot of his supporters will be wanting the tax cuts to go through in 2024 as legislated, because then, you know, Albo could very well come out and you know, want to put the the taxes back to where they were, but they won't because they don't want to have the media and the LNP and everyone saying, look, look, Labor are admitting they want to raise your taxes back up and they'll be able to throw their hands up and say, well, we're not going to be able to campaign on putting the taxes back because, you know, that'll just guarantee us losing and then we're going to be stuck with this conservative government again and they're going to, you know, wash themselves of responsibility for the tax cut, for stage three tax cuts. Uh, and if you, uh, yeah, I, that, that makes sense. Adi? You're in your uh, opinion, Eltherion. What would you, uh, you, you mentioned if they go through there and get the mandate to go ahead with it, what happens if they sort of have a, a fizzer of a victory in the same way as they have this this year? Do you feel that changes the equation? I think that would depend entirely on the makeup of the fizzer, so to speak. Like if we had, like a people are not shy to admit that the weak victory, quote unquote weak victory from the ALP this time around, by barely getting majority and having increased presence of greens and teals, nobody is shy to say that this was an election where people wanted action on climate change and an ICAC, for example, because that's what the greens and teals were pushing for in their campaigns. Oh, if yep, yep. if they delayed it to another election and we had similar candidates saying, yes, we support the stage three tax cuts or no, we don't support the stage three tax cuts, it would depend on the makeup of those other MPs as to which way the the mandate would go, so to speak. Oh, great. Yep, good point. Very good. So kind of... You touched on climate change there, and I think it might be time to, you know, tackle that bugbear, if you will. Um, the ALP government did pass, or the 43% target is going to pass the Senate at this point, um, after the negotiations and stuff have gone down. Uh, how do we feel that whole thing went? Like, the will it pass, will it not pass, etc. the 43% target, will it change? You know, how was that kind of uh story going for the government at that time and as i 
I mean, I don't think it was their finest foot forward to be locked in a battle with the Greens on a matter like this. I mean, the the merits of what the specific target were, uh, I think... Well, let me back up a second. You had a huge amount of electoral noise made this election in support of action on climate change. So something had to get done. I don't know if it's necessarily a mandate for 43% or not, but it is a mandate for a collaborative, consultative process with the parties who were elected. Even if you don't need their votes, they have a mandate from the people as much as the the government does as well. So I don't think it was the, the finest foot forward. And I think the whole thing, even you know, Tanya Plibersek's, let's call it what it is, demotion, um, into, into a subset portfolio there. There is a lot of politicking going around on it at a time when the message was stop playing stupid politics on climate. So I, I don't know that it'll hurt them in the long term, but in the short term, I don't think it was the most impressive foot forward they could have put. Although I just realised I ended a sentence with a preposition, sorry. <laughs> so um, then what about you, Arthurian? <laughs> um... Look, uh, yeah, sorry, I can't form a sentence on how I feel about it at the moment. I'll, I'll, huh. I'll politely pass at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All good. <laughs> oh, what about you, Have Apricot? You... So uh, you, you go first. I, I, yeah, I, I wish the target had been higher. Um, it kind of, in my opinion, came to its predestined conclusion. Um, I don't think anyone really wanted a repeat of 2009, God forbid. Um, but it did really, I, I think it put a lot of early strain on the Labour-Green relationship at that point in this parliament to kind of, like, for lack of a better word, wedge the Greens so kind of publicly and fiercely and really throw the gauntlet down that, that it was really combative. Um, and I don't know how well that will play going forward. Um, the Greens have signalled that they're going to, you know, try and push more on the safeguard mechanism. Excuse me. Um, well, and also trying to amend the budget. They're, like, willing to kind of flex their parliamentary power a bit more now. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I would agree with Enna that it was a bit of a misstep. Um, we could have we we could have had so much better. We could have had a proper collaborative process between you know the government, the opposition have felt like showing up, um, the Greens and the Teals, and really kind of hammered out really good climate legislation. But then it kind of comes back to that earlier point um, about wanting to take ownership of that. Labor, Labor doesn't want to share passing yeah. the first climate policy in a decade. It, it's theirs, and that's what they want to pass. And I just, it's a bit sad, I think. Yep, look, I, I tend to agree with all of that. I think the one of the themes this morning is that owning the uh, the glory, because I, I, if it doesn't work, well, then it will be somebody else's fault, of course. But that owning the glory, I think, is coming through now in a couple of of points like this, it was it was interesting politics uh, back and forth. Uh, I don't think Labor was ever going to. Uh, I think Labor was always going to 
find a way to be the ones that have brought in these these targets. I mean, you you just had to look through what people were campaigning on, and that was that's why Altherion's why I said Altherion's point was was such a good point. Uh, it wasn't just Labor; it was the Teals. It was independent. I mean, if you read a a party's policies that didn't have climate change mentioned in some way, either either incidentally or, or breathlessly, uh, it was something un, it was something unusual. So, I think they're always going to they're always going to come to the party one way or the other. But I think they actually won that first round. Uh, I know there's all different opinions about targets, etc. But to me, that was a and for someone who's not sporting, I might be butchering this analogy, but that was a very good first quarter win to Labor. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I generally think... like. Sorry, you go ahead, Ender. No, you go. Sorry. I, was say, I think no, it's a um, it's, it's a case of maybe they won the battle but lost the war. Well, I don't don't know if I would necessarily even call it losing the war. Like, you know, all arguments about what target should be and the ambition on climate reduction and carbon reduction rather and all that, blah, 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 aside, even just in my everyday life, like just a, you know, bit of clarity, I work in a blue-collar manufacturing union job. Like, I'm probably in the work in a workplace which is a perfect example of you know quote unquote labor's base and i can tell you honestly of the hundreds of people that work in the area that i do nobody gives two shites about what the target is they're just happy that labor got something done so quickly like they're more they care that it's a proof of action versus inaction rather than, you know, navel-gazing mm. and, you know, lamenting about all specifics and targets and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yep, I can see that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, it really comes down to asking, what did the electorate want? Did they want action on climate change or do they want decent action on climate change? Because those aren't the same thing necessarily. Um do you know what I mean? So, like, was the electorate like, wanting to actually get zero emissions by 2030? I think what science says we need to do, or did they just want something, anything? Uh, and are they now satisfied that they've got that? And it, um, it almost feels there's a little bit of overlap with that point. You know, one of the uh, the early... I guess policy successes that people were attributing to Albo with with the minimum wage increase, right? It's like, do we actually just want the impression of a government doing government things rather than trying to shore up its base and appointing itself to secret ministries? That the optics of government going about government business is sufficient for the electorate to say, right, there's a degree of normalcy returning here. We like competency, we're getting competency, let's go from there. Yeah, I, I... I very much agree with that. Like that, like it's it, it comes hand in hand, I suppose, with what we were talking previously about the ICAC and all that. And you know, it's 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 an aspect of trust in government is also an aspect of competency in government. And I think showing competency by getting some wins on the board and being seen to be doing things could be more meaningful than achieving one hundred percent of 
what people want in terms of outcomes is concerned. Mm. So on this note, it's probably worthwhile that we turn our attention towards what is really becoming a centre plank of this parliament. Uh, the ALP is pushing it. We are going to be getting it, hopefully which is the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Uh, they've signalled a lot of action on that. For some reason, they've got Sharp O'Neill involved. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, yeah, that how, was how a bit bizarre, speak? wasn't it? I, I, <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw the visual first. I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. And then I read about it, and it became more bizarre than their disparity in, in heights. I didn't know whether that was... Um, Grifting on Shaq's behalf or giving him complete uh, credit for some of the issues he's concerned about. He may have well so seen it as a, a valuable opportunity, but what a what a bizarre little thing to do. Yeah, or, I mean, or, I, or extremely I tall read, thing to do. I didn't watch or any of the videos or read any of the articles or anything about it because as soon as I heard about it, I just I died a bit inside and I thought I cannot engage <laughs> with this. This is cringe politics at its worst. Yeah. And look, just from a just from a um, an an optics point of view, uh, it looks like it was possibly a little bit of a mistake there because it made Albo look extremely small. And obviously, all all of us are going to be bloody looking small compared to um, to Shaq. He can't help that. But the the image is he looks like a little kid. <laughs> um. Yeah, the other thing as well, though, and I, I just kind of want to you know, point this out for you all. Uh, at some point in the future, there may very well be a high school question where it's like, which NBA star supported the Indigenous Voice to, to Parliament in 2022? Um, <laughs> a fan tales rapper. Oh, like dear. the ages big quiz at the end of the year, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> and um, sorry, I, I, I took you off. I took you off track with that because I was just I was quite blown away by that. Sorry, what what were you leaning into with that apricot? So that's a bit more of the humorous side of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, if you will. Um, but how do we think the government's tracking in terms of the Indigenous Voice and how they're pushing for it? Um, and kind of tangentially related. The opposition, how are they going with that? I don't want to focus too much on those. And that, um, I, I don't even know what the opposition stance is, really. Like, I just sort of tune out the noise coming out of uh, P. Dutton's mouth. Um, I think <laughs> that the <clears throat> it's a long overdue move, right? And, um, I mean, I've said this in the past, I was critical of the Rudd's apology didn't go far enough. Like, we plainly need to do more with Indigenous Australians um, to tackle issues of systemic discrimination, um, incarceration rates, uh, unemployment rates, etc. A voice to Parliament's a step in the right direction of trying to set up success for the future, which is not going to come overnight. So I think it's been interesting to watch the interplay again between Labor and the Greens on this, but fundamentally... This is one of those things I think Labor's getting it right. And I think that that this is, it's a necessary step. It's an overdue step, but I'm glad they're doing it and they're doing it in a consultative fashion. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said getting it right and mentioning the consultative action, fashion because I feel like, like, feel free to disagree, obviously, but I feel like that's a 
early on, Albo came in, you know, guns blazing, thinking, yeah, we're going to have this, you know, um, constitutional amendment. It's going to be like this, and there's going to be this question, and that'll be the end of it. And I, I, I suspect he was hoping just to be able to get a, again, a quick run on the board and a quick win with that, but saw some very serious pushback from people saying, this is, there's not enough detail in this. We need more information yep. on the question. We need more information on a public education uh, campaign out there, X, Y, Z. Like, there was this massive, massive pushback on it. And to his credit and to the rest of the Labor team's credit, they have now taken a few steps moving forward and getting it right, as you said, Ender, like, you know, being more consultative, be, taking the time to actually get it right now rather than than, as I suspect, just trying to get that big win on the board as a big signpost policy and looks mm. like at least they're trying to do it right. I Go on. Sorry. Sorry. I, I would generally agree with both of you. Um, the thing is that my main concern, I do actually have a main concern with this, which is I'm worried that they'll, like, push the referendum, it would hopefully pass. If it would fail, God, I don't know what I would say about this country. But once the referendum is passed, I'm worried that the government would then kind of take the approach of, there we go, guys, we solved Indigenous issues for a bit and kind of not actually address some of the systemic issues. I agree. That is something that's pretty not just systemic to Australian politics, but, you know, politics in the quote-unquote first world in general is, you know, there can be X large problem, but if you publicly and strongly make, you know, a, a, a change that covers a small portion of it, you can then ride the coattails of that change for a while and further changes and then uh, don't get done for a while because you've already said, oh, but we did this. But I'm that's cynical of me to suggest that we that is all that we're going to get out of this. So I'm not sure... Like it is a, a worthwhile fear, Apricot, to to suggest that maybe once this is done, Albo will be able to wash his hands and not do anything for the rest of the term or what have you. But knowing some of the advocates in the party and all that, I, I suspect that, yes, there will be a little bit of that coattail riding, but there will be very, very strong pushes from within the party to keep doing more. Yeah, I I probably tend to uh, think it's it's more of a certainty than anything any anything else. I remain remain to be convinced that it's going to be anything more than uh, you know, a quick signalling and parade. It's going to be almost as as transient as a Ukrainian flag on your your Facebook profile. I don't think we're going to see a hell of a lot action after that because it will almost by necessity get bogged down in uh committees and legalese and deciding it'll, it'll be a new little uh it'll be a new source of sort of power that has to be reckoned with and in what looks like uh turbulent times ahead for the next uh next few years it's the type of issue that uh, people are going to quickly say, "Listen, I voted for it. I did my my bit. Uh, yeah, I, I did what I needed to to demonstrate that uh, how I, how I voted. But now that's settled, and we're on to the next thing. Completely ignoring the 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 long term ramifications of it. But as a general public, that tends to be how we 
that tends to be how we react. And, and my comment on just the uh, how it's gone so far, I disagree with the three of you. I think Labor at the moment is a little bit of a fail on this this issue, and I think they're a fail because of, uh, despite the fact they're trying to be more consultative, it doesn't seem to have been sold well enough to me. And when I look at that question, I think that is a question that is is basically doomed to fail. Now, I understand it's not the final version. So hopefully the final version is going to be something that uh, a lot of people can can get on board with and feel comfortable with. But as it is at the moment, I don't think Labor's doing a particularly good job. And I think that, uh, well, I suppose it's Dutton's opposition, now you'd correctly refer to it, the, uh, the Liberal Party, are probably doing a reasonable approach in uh, saying saying virtually nothing about it and seeing which way things are, are going. You know, they've got they've got sort of on the the right fringes uh, people making their, their comments about it. But as a party position, I'm with Ender. It's a bit hard to tell what their uh, position is, and I think at the moment on such a big issue that that is that is clever. Maybe I don't know if I'm 100 sold on that. To be honest, no. What what don't you disagree? What do you disagree with on that? I think the idea of the opposition doing something remotely competent at this point. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look fair. But that's actually pro. It's probably a fair point, though, right? That like just to touch on the opposition briefly because of how they've struggled to to form a cohesive voice on anything really um, since the election and since the, the electoral defeat, it almost feels like they've read 2013 and gone, well, Tony Abbott won a landslide rather than Labor lost in a landslide. Therefore, what people actually desperately crave is is a conservative PM. And never mind that we've had poll bumps when we, when we ditch Tony Abbott. What we need to do is just oppose everything and, and stay conservative and Australians will reward us with a 2013-style victory and... We'll just say no to everything, and that that seems to be the breadth and depth of their entire ideological makeup, which is good if you're Labour, bad if you're a country that wants to have a, a number of choices of ideas um, being pushed into the parliament, different, I guess, perspectives and, and voices. So the 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 biggest part of I guess the Albo victory has been just how um, neutered it's left its opposite its main opposition party and how the Greens is almost becoming in effect the opposition just by virtue of how much attention Labor gives it in in debating its ideas mm. and trying to put its ideas in its place. Mm, well, I agree, yeah. Yeah, and I think what really kind of hammers that point home, Ender, is the job summit that's upcoming because, you know, now you've got, it's being helped by Albanese, it's inviting unions, businesses, community, everyone. The Greens are going to be there, the Nationals are going to be there under David Littlebrow. But Peter uh, Dutton is boycotting it because, I don't know, the ideological reasons that are as deep as a puddle, um, mm. just doesn't want to be involved, I guess. You know, something about blah, blah, unions. Um, yeah, I think it, I think the, they're in a really tough spot at this point. I'm glad you mentioned and brought up the Job Summit Apricot because... I think that's an important part that we haven't had a chance to talk about so far in this pod. Um, I know it's not technically within the first 100 days of Albo, but 
it is something that's very, very close on the horizon and deserves to be mentioned. Mm. Um, I think personally, beyond anything else, like even the climate change target and all that, I believe what comes out of this job summit will be a very big shaping point for the Albanese government moving forward. Like we, many of us are old enough to remember the accord and with the unions um, and the uh, Hawkey and all that. Mm. And I think that Albo initially wanted this job summit to be his version of the accord, but there's been a lot of changing rhetoric about expectations and who's even going to the job summit, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's going to be a, a very, something that we should all be watching very, very closely because I believe it definitely will become a cornerstone of what to expect from the government moving forward. And it's on that note that I think, much like many people were with the 43% target, that a lot of people will be left disappointed with what the government is bringing to the jobs summit. Like Albo has publicly stated that he doesn't want to rock the boat. He wants to reassure people that, you know, short of a few things here and there, there's we're, we're going to more or less have business as usual. But based on some recent polling from Essential, I think it was, um, mm -hmm. if you'll indulge me for a moment, that doesn't seem to be what people want. Um, I think there was two or 3,000 people uh all over Australia, indicative of all of Australians uh, interviewed for the latest essential poll. And like some of the numbers are quite astounding to me, frankly, like uh, almost two thirds of people polled support something along the lines of a super profits tax, um, which has been something that a lot of people have been pushing for and that Elbow has been pushing back against. 80% uh, think that government needs to take a more active role in the shaping of the economy, as opposed to 20% of people who think that it should just be left up to the market, for example. Mm. 58, so like, again, almost two thirds, more than half, think that Australia's economic system is broken, like actually broken, and that the government needs to make fundamental changes to sort it out. And and there's also talk about you know RBA reform, blah blah. I won't go through every single point in the in this um in this essential poll, but you know to me this reads like Albo wants to you know make a few little changes at the fringes and paint this as a big victory moving forward. But what the data is showing us and what the public wants out there is that the public are hungry for a lot of far-reaching structural changes to the economy that will help them secure long-term employment, wages, growth, and uh, help with cost of living. Like, no, people, like, I think this is what raises a lot of the disconcertion around stage three tax cuts is pe the average, you know, working person isn't going to get the biggest benefit from stage three tax cuts. They're looking at it going, right. what's in it for me? Yeah. And yep. so... I think this job summit, if there isn't some of that far-reaching structural change, a lot of people will be disappointed and be and will punish um, electorally given the chance or publicly given the chance the Albanese government for for his lack of ambition.
Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Look, we, we do we do like it. We do like a good um, pr- prediction on on here. I know we're nearing the end, uh, Apricot. Just just wanted to say hello to uh, to a couple of the people in the chat: Ben Along and uh, Miao Zidong. One four two. Uh, there's a couple of comments referring to what we'd spoken to earlier. Uh, if you want to go in there and read, and I also do want to emphasize uh, Apricot's comment in there the Tim Hollow interview, uh, it will be included on in the podcast. Unfortunately, we had a, a slight issue with the audio processing, and we decided that rather than broadcast something sub quality here, uh, we'll make sure that's tidied up for the actual podcast so if you want to hear uh with, with tim hollow and we will be updating it with a timestamp in these comments so this whole process takes a few a few hours uh but if you want to tune into tim hollow's interview then uh give us a little bit of time come back and check when the podcast comes up and check here in the the comments so look just wanted to jump in on that uh before we get to the end part of it apricot thank you very much um yeah, I also wanted to just touch on your point, Akiri, on about ambition. Um, I agree that the voters may punish Albanese for his like lack of ambition in that regard. And kind of also touching on about the idea of the Greens becoming more of an opposition was what they're given. Uh, the Greens so far uh, have gone, like, because they're going to the job summit, and they said that they want the minimum wage to be set at 60% of the full-time adult median salary. Now, in your opinion, what do you think are the chances of Albanese supporting this? And if not, how will that be spun? Because like, it's a bad look when you have a Labour leader kind of arguing against an increase to the like minimum wage, really, isn't it? Well, I don't uh, think it's going to be that difficult for him to say, no, I don't support it, because he'll just be able to say, well, we recently had our submission to the FWC and, you know, minimum wages recently went up. So, we, you know, that's already being addressed. End of story. And I think that's the line he'll take with that. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, they set up a process. The process has worked incredibly well for a decade in terms of resisting um allowing anyone forced to have too much of a say in what the minimum wage is. It's a very balanced approach that lands on what's the necessary and right outcome. Um, and, and I think the easy answer for, for Labor on top of that is not just to point back to the process, but to say, and Jim Chalmers has done this messaging since day one, full credit to him. There's a lot of pain to come. We need to make sure that the steps that we take are reasonable. They don't create more inflationary pressure. They don't create scenarios where we're going to hurt the economy in the medium term to give a, a quick prop in the short term. There's work to be done on wages. This this is a good idea, but it's not the right idea. And, and it gives them a chance to kind of suggest that Bant's ideas are much more driven by the heart than the head. That may not necessarily resonate with some people. Um, and this kind of goes back to the the essential poll. But I think Albo actually needs to do stuff that that is potentially unpopular short term with some trust that the the long term wisdom of it will pan out. So I, I would expect him to reject it. I think the right answer is he should probably reject that that particular figure that Bounce put forward. Hmm. Right. Well on that note we might just start looking at wrapping up. Um thank you guys for joining us today. It's been really well. And as I didn't mention before, we will be having the Tim Holly interview uploaded to your favorite podcasting platform. 
For those who don't know, uh, Tim Hollow is the executive director of the Green Institute. Uh, he's also a former Greens candidate for the seat of Canberra at the 2022 federal election. And he's also recently just written a book called Living Democracy. I highly recommend you guys check it out. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thanks mate. Thanks, Thanks, Elfina. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ender. So, Tim, we're approaching the market of 100 days of the Albanese government. Um, what would you say in like a quick, you know, 30-second review of the government, what would you say so far? Well, I mean, they had a very low bar to jump over, didn't they? We've just come out of some <laughs> of the worst government that we've seen in this country ever, and they're definitely doing better than that. I mean, you know, we, we have a competent government. We have a group of people who seem to be wanting to act with at least the basics of decency and integrity and competence. And in some cases, they're doing a good job, but they're also just, you know, they're just doing a good job. They're not fixing a whole lot of things that need to be fixed. They're barely doing enough in a whole lot of places. Um, so, yeah, massively better than what we had before. Way off good enough. Yeah, right. that's that's understandable. Um, would you say that your point about integrity and like transparency would be the main difference between this government and the previous one? Yeah, look, I think I think absolutely so. You know, there, there's there's very little question that the last government um, and you know, coalition liberal and, and national governments for some time have been using power and abusing power. You know, quite awfully. Um, they've been trashing a whole lot of the basic norms of how we do government um, with pretty much reckless abandon. Um, and we're not seeing that. You know, we're seeing a government which is basically seeking to, you know, to, to um, you know, repair some of the damage that is being done to our norms of democracy and that's a really good thing and yeah they are acting with decency and integrity you know on a whole lot of things you know it's what i mean by by with with basic integrity but not good enough is is things like the previous government was reasonably open a lot of the time about just rejecting the good science of climate change that this is a reality that we need to grapple with they barely acknowledged that and a whole lot of them just didn't acknowledge it. This government acknowledges that it's real and a lot of the time is talking as though they understand and appreciate the science and respect the science and they're moving legislation that, you know, shows that they do basically respect the science, but then they turn around and and approve a whole lot more um, exploration for for offshore petroleum. They want to see the you know the continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry. All of these things, which are completely at odds with you know with a, a true understanding of the reality of the climate science. Um, you know they're talking about they've just introduced um, moved for a, a royal commission into into robo debt, which was one of the most horrific things that the last government did. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they're still you know, moving with a whole lot of policies themselves, which are treating unemployed people and people who've been, you know, excluded from the job market for a whole lot of reasons appallingly and, you know, continuing the the cashless welfare card, even though they said they'd abolish it. So, you know, a whole lot of a whole lot of things were there. 
they're saying a whole lot of the right things. They're acting as though they're the grown-ups in the room and they are absolutely so much more the grown-ups in the room than the last mob, um, but <laughs> really not good enough. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you previously worked with uh, Christine Milne in Parliament um, and you've been in Parliament before, you know, like as a staffer. So you've probably had a bit of a front row seat in terms of like the Labor-Green relationship. Um, mm. I was just kind of wondering... Uh, what would you say that relationship is at the moment compared to the days of like Bob Brown and Christine Milne? Um, look, I would say it's not necessarily Bob Brown and Christine Milne versus Adam Bant, who uh, you know who were the key players. the The trouble with the relationship between the Greens and Labor has always been Labor's unwillingness to have a decent relationship, frankly. Um, and some people may say, "Well, you're a Green, you, you would say that." But I'm an ACT Green. I've seen how the ACT Labor Party and the ACT Greens can work very, very cooperatively and have done for the last um, 14 years now. Um, so it can work when you've got um, a Labor Party that's willing to work. And we saw the difference, you know, the difference when you had a change of leadership in Labor between Rudd and Gillard is, is the prime example of this. And I was, as you say, I was a staffer at the time. I was working for Christine Milne. Um, starting off when when John Howard was still Prime Minister and then through the Rudd years and then through the Gillard years. Um, and, yeah, the challenge is that that Rudd refused to talk to the Greens under any circumstances ever, refused to negotiate under any circumstances. Julia Gillard demonstrated uh, a willingness to work constructively and cooperatively, and so through the years of her government, despite Rudd's best efforts to tear it down consistently over that entire period, a whole lot of amazing stuff got done, some of which still stands today. Um, we're yet to see, I think, how this government's going to operate. Um, it was really pleasing to see. I thought that with their 43% emissions target bill, they were daring the Greens to vote it down. Um, and I think some of them in the Labor Party wanted the Greens to do so. Um, because they wanted to just have that as a as a as a stick to whack the party with for the rest of the term, and I think mm. the Greens did a very clever move in supporting it while being very clear publicly about it not being good enough, and kind of switched the pressure back onto Labor now. Um, so we're not seeing a huge willingness by Labor to want to actually talk with the Greens, but at the same time we're seeing a recognition by Labor that they can't get anything through the Senate unless they are actually willing to negotiate. Um, so so I think it's yet to be seen quite how that'll operate. Their rhetoric is really problematic. Their rhetoric is to, to trash the Greens yep. at every opportunity, but their actions are not necessarily quite as stark as that. Yeah, look, that's the, that was one of the, the, the things that I had, uh, Dan, as well, to, to ask you. you. You said that change won't last unless it comes from the community, which, which implies a, a connected community will, will create more mm -hmm. effective change. That publicly divisive stance that Albanese had took out of the gates uh, with the, the Greens, and up front, I'm not, a, I'm not a Greens voter, but that doesn't mean I don't want to listen to some, mm -hmm. you know, people talking common sense, that uh, publicly divisive stance that Albanese took out of the gates with the Greens and climate targets, do you think that that's going to negatively translate to a community level? 
Look, I think it will because I think, um, you know, I, I think what we saw at this election, at the federal election, was not just a swing to the Greens but a swing to the independents um, and a swing away from both major parties. Um, and it was very, very clearly on the basis of a desire for stronger climate action and a desire for more integrity in politics um, and a desire to move away from this very combative um, adversarial mode of politics. People were were very explicitly and deliberately moving towards um, minor parties and independents who were coming in with a with a a perspective of we need more integrity and we need we need a, a you know explicitly saying we need a, a minority parliament we need a parliament where people are going to have to negotiate with each other mm. um and on the back of that with labor elected with the lowest primary vote that any government in australian history has ever been elected on they came out of the gates with this very kind of chest thumping we've got a mandate we just have you know we've got the right to pass whatever legislation we want the conversations that i've been having with people post-election still kind of across the community suggest to me that that's not going down well people don't want that people actually do want this government to negotiate with the parliament um that the people have elected and you know work together for for some you know for some stronger action and climate is front and center of that and you know the vast majority of Australians understand the reality of the climate science and they understand that that means, first and foremost, we've got to stop expanding and start shutting down fossil fuels. So this idea that Labor is still trumpeting, that we can say we we believe the climate science and respect the climate science, but also, by the way, we're just going to continue to expand fossil fuels, it's not going to wash. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think they would do well. I think Labor would do very well if they were willing to say, We've got big issues here. We've got a parliament where we need to negotiate. We've got a whole lot of things we can do. Um, and we're going to take the community with us. What they're doing at the moment is is continuing to treat the community as mugs and mm. kind of hide behind, hide behind some old, old rhetoric, which doesn't fly anymore. So I think they're going to have problems if they keep it up like that. Hmm. Right. Now... I read recently, I believe it was in The Guardian, uh, when Albanese had been asked about the new safeguard mechanism. Um, he mentioned that the Greens were simply seeking product differentiation uh, between themselves and the Labor Party. Um, personally, I was a bit you know, taken aback by that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that idea of product differentiation between the two parties. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect example of the fact that our mainstream politics continues to treat politics as a game instead of actually as democracy, as the way we, you know, we we elect representatives to actually deal with big problems. And Labor has always treated climate as a political issue, a political game, rather than the existential threat to everything that it poses this idea that the greens are seeking product differentiation by saying well climate change means we're going to have to stop burning fossil fuels is really insulting frankly it's insulting to the greens but it's insulting to anybody who actually understands the basics of the science um and is paying any kind of decent level of in, of, of attention to to what's going on here so again i just think you know, it seems to me, it strikes me as as kind of a prime example of Labor's sort of student politics level of 
you know, of of treatment of 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 this issue of incredible seriousness, that they're just yeah they're treating it as a game, and thinking that clever little lines like that are going to stand them in good stead when it just comes off as as insulting. Hmm. Uh, we might look at wrapping up soon, but what I wanted to also ask you about, uh, Albanese has made it a priority of this parliament about an Indigenous voice to parliament. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that and, you know, with the referendum that should hopefully come later this parliament, how do you see that going? Mm. Look, I think it's fantastic that the parliament is taking this seriously. Um, I think it's it's a wonderful thing for our country that we have the largest number of First Nations people in our parliament that we've ever had and across party lines where we're seeing that. Um, so that's that's fantastic. We obviously need to have a deep debate in this country about um, our constitution, about the you know the fact that this country is founded on genocide, on colonial appropriation of of this land. Um, I worry, and I know Senator Lydia Thorpe. Um, you know, the the First Nations woman uh, senator for the Greens and and holds the Indigenous issues portfolios for the Greens is very worried that the debate that we're having currently at a political level is kind of really detached from that and is trying to find a, an easy political solution. That said, it is it is an important step in the right direction. You know, coming back to to what you said about my my view about the fact that you know, political solutions will only last if they actually come from the community and have strong community backing. Um, I do I do think it's really crucially important that we have this conversation very, very deeply in our society about about what this means and where we go next. Um, if if this is a first step and it's a successful first step to actually embedding um, First Nations leadership and governance in in the way we do democracy in this country, then I think that will be important. Um, but I think it's crucial that it's not seen as a be-all and end-all. We, we need to grapple with the very dark history um, of this country. Um, and, you know, if, we, if we're to move towards treaty, we're going to have to understand that treaties must involve give and take on both sides. And I think white Australia hasn't quite come to terms with the fact that treaty with First Nations people means we're going to have to give. We've done a lot of taking. We're going to have to start giving. Right. Uh, before we wrap up, Tim, would you like to plug your new book? Oh, thank you. That's kind of you to offer. <laughs> yeah. <I've>, <laughs> I, have a, I have a book out called Living Democracy, an Ecological Manifesto for the End of the World as We Know It, which I've been working on for a couple of years. Um, and yeah, it kind of it's a it's a way of of reaching out to a whole lot of people that I know are out there because I speak to so many people who are kind of looking at politics today and scratching their heads and kind of going, this is not this is not what we need. This is absolutely not what we need in the face of the crises that that are that are lining up, not just the climate crisis and, and ecological crises, but threats to our democracy, um, you know, spiralling inequality, the, the the absolute horrendous, you know, um, housing crisis that we have, which is one of the most crucial parts of the of the deep inequality, economic inequality crisis that we have. Um, and this book is a way of kind of piecing together for 
for people who are kind of scratching their heads and not seeing solutions in politics, a way of thinking about the world, I've put it in terms of, of ecological thinking, thinking which is about understanding interdependence and diversity, um, which, yeah. are the, which are the keys to healthy ecosystems, and putting that into political thinking. So it's called Living Democracy. Um, I'm doing launches all around the country um, in, in Canberra here on the 31st of August and, um, and in, in Adelaide and Brisbane and Melbourne soon. So, yeah, I hope people are interested in checking that out. Excellent. Excellent. Tim Hollow, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Tim.